The revolution is here. A movement of people free to live, work, and choose. We won't tell you what to think. We just demand that you think for yourself. This is Kibbe on Liberty. Sort of, I, I like the spontaneous emergence of a conversation, and hopefully, too. hopefully, it becomes something. Well, interesting. but you know, that's the key thing. All my life, I've loved conversation, but I love real conversation, yeah. where it's as though there's something out here in the middle that you and I are both working on, and I, I nudge it a little, and you say, "Well, you know, maybe it should be this," and I just delight in that. And if you, you know, I was on the airplane the other day. I was. Uh, sitting next to a guy, an older guy, who I'm sure was a Trump voter. I was coming back from Texas, so I imagine he was. And, and I uh, carefully avoided Trump or any of that, and we had a very fruitful conversation. Yeah. Because there were things we could talk about where we could learn from each other. And we could hear, hear you know, there's the old joke, there, there's a reason God gave us two ears and only one mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... So you, you may or may not remember this. Um, in 1986, 1987, you had released a book in 85 called The Rhetoric of Economics. Indeed, I had. And my dear mentor, a mentor perhaps for both of us, Don Lavoy. Oh, I love Don. Um, he's still a mentor, even though he's, he's long gone. Oh, he's a wonderful man. Yes. Sweet and, man. And he taught me a lot about how to think about the world and, yeah, and yeah. How, to, how to be open-minded how to be, have a little bit of humility about what you don't know. Um, he and I would go to talk to our friends, now listen to this, the postmodern Marxists. Yeah. He was teaching me about Austrian economics, which I didn't know much about, and I was a standard neoclassical is what it's called, but it's kind of silly, e economist. But we were both interested in rhetoric yeah. and persuasion. And so we'd go talk to these guys, and it was wonderful. It's, and, and I think after that, Don had us reading a lot of postmodernism. Yeah, he did. And, and we're digging deep into the footnotes of Ludwig von Mises and, sure. and reading a lot of continental philosophy. Um, and, but I, I never, and you, so you, at Don's invitation, you gave a series of lectures on the rhetoric of economics. Yes, I did. And, and years later, I realized how impactful that was on not just the way I think about the world and the way I think about language, but in in my own career path from wannabe academic, where the, the title would take up half a page of my paper <laughs> and there would be more footnotes than, than text, yeah, yeah. to writing my first op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, 800 words, yeah. pain, painfully chosen, to to what we do today, we tell stories. Yeah. And, and it, a lot of it comes back to the rhetoric of economics and your central point, which I'll probably butcher, was that stories and metaphors sure. make for good economics. Exactly. In fact, they're, they're all that makes for good economics. Um, economists are poets but don't know it. And they're novelists but they hate it. Yeah. They want, they, you know, you say a demand, look, there's a demand curve for housing on Capitol Hill. Now, I just came through there, and I didn't see any demand curve in the sky. Did you? I, have you ever seen the demand curve in the sky? But it's, it's, I, I do, but I'm that weird. <laughs> but it's, it's a mathematical uh, metaphor. Yeah. It's, it's a figure of speech. And economists think, oh, no, no, it's literal. No, it's not. Come on, guys. It's comparing one realm to another, a realm of mathematics to the, the 
complicated, emotionally fraught um, human cooperation over buying and selling a house. And then stories are just endless in economics. You, you have the sort of core story. <clears throat> I'm an expert economist, and you obviously don't know anything. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you better off by, by telling you what you need to think. And if you're a whole country, that's even better. I get to design your country. Once you were poor, once upon a time you were poor, then you talk to me, now you're rich, is the underlying story of expertise yeah. in economics. And I wrote a kind of follow-on book in 1990 called If You're So Smart, which I think is the big criticism of this particular enrichment story. Yeah, it's, um, I, I think perhaps the main reason economists have such a bad reputation. We're, we're like maybe right above lawyers in, in the circles of hell <laughs> well, diagram, but I'm yeah. not sure. But yeah, yeah. There's actually in the Inferno by Dante, there's a level, I think it's the ninth, in which prognosticators live and yeah. their heads are screwed on backwards yeah. in hell. Those would be Hayek's intellectuals. Well, the intellectuals and the big sin in economics is trying to predict interest rates. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think one of the reasons that normal folks resent us is that we're constantly pretending we know more than we do. Yeah, that's and, true. And you, you described that sort of slippery slope. We're here inside the yeah. Beltway in the slippery slope for any professional economist is to go to Capitol Hill with, yeah. with, with the grand plan. Yeah, this yeah. is how we're going to make everything all better. Yeah. And it's always a disaster. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm, I'm in, I've just begun to do an essay, which I have to present to some friends of mine next Sunday, called The Impossibility of Policy. And I'm going to try to make the case that uh, on all kinds of grounds, you can easily imagine what they are, policies, which in Adam Smith's terminology, by the way, was called police, which is pretty much to the point, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, is, is an epistemological and ethical impossibility. So it, it, it so seldom works. You know, we, we talk, people talk as though they're, they actually believed it, the law of unintended consequences. Well, yeah, it's a law. Yeah. <laughs> it happens all the time. And you think you're pulling this lever and then this other lever moves and you didn't even think that it would. And yeah, yeah. yeah the, the kind of clean vision of policy, which the great Dutch economist Jan Tinbergen articulated, where there's one lever you pull and that does one thing and then you can turn to the other level and pull and that'll do another and hey cool you've got the levers and the results all lined up it's nuts yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy yeah. when i was a kid when we were graduate students at harvard and yale or princeton we reckoned that we were going to go down to washington and here here is the phrase fine tune the economy right we're gonna like a shortwave set. We're gonna fine tune it. Gee whiz! It's just an engine. Lift it, the hood. It's just an engine. Where, of course, what it is, and this is uh, uh, Ad, Ad, Adam Smith's great point about the man of system. He called him, who thinks he can move the people in a great society around like 
like pieces on, on a chessboard. And, and Hayek's making the same point in, the, uh, uh, in, in, in his, his notion of the knowledge problem. Can't do it. Yeah. So the thing that I wanted to tackle today, and we started this conversation in Guatemala. We did. Um, you, you had given a talk, and, and I, I very much enjoy your, your critique of, of the language that we use. And, yeah, and that's particularly right. the word, the C word, capitalism. That's right. Um, so much baggage. And I, I wanted to take um, your old title and, and maybe call the title of this episode The Rhetoric of Liberty. Yes, indeed. And how we might I've written on that, go about, you have. Oh, yeah, okay. I have an article called Rhetoric of Liberty. Okay, so, <laughs> so I've already stolen so your I'm ideas. So I'm all set. Okay, you're good to go. So everyone, we're done here, just go read the article and it's fine. But the, the, the challenge of, and not just economics, but, but the challenge of explaining why the man of system can't just lift the hood and yeah. fine tune the engine, but more importantly, why when people are free, really beautiful things happen. Yeah. Um, how do we explain that to people that? Well, you know, I can explain. Don't it. read the books that we read. Well, I can explain it to you very easily because you're an economist. Even if you weren't a, uh, a, a liberal economist as you are, and I am too, by pointing out that there's individual decision. I make fun of it by calling it. Max U, maximizing utility. Yeah. There's individual decision, and then there's this policy stuff or police on top. But most of our lives take place in the middle, in what Hayek called a spontaneous order, and uh, the great sociologist uh, um, Howard, 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 Howard Becker calls a world. He has a very, he, he doesn't know it, but he has a really liberal vision. Um, as in language, here we are speaking English. Has there been a central planner? Nope. <laughs> Does, can I choose, like Humpty Dumpty, to use words the way I want? No, I can't. It's not going to work out. You won't know what I'm talking about. Um, so there, language we, we deal with all day long. Friendship, that's not top-down planned. It's not even individually planned. None of us can give a Max U rational explanation of why we met and married the person we did. It's just impossible. Everyone knows that. Accidents and, and the, uh, so on. And it's true of uh, art. It's true of science. And by the way, Terry would argue that she's definitely did not maximize utility by marrying me. <laughs> Well, Am I, I wrong? I, I, I'm not going to contradict another woman on <laughs> yeah. this point. I'm just not going to. So don't expect me to go over to your side. I've done that. Been there, done that. To heck with that. No, it, it, so there's this enormous area of spontaneous order. And people don't believe in it. They swim in it all day long. They're like the fish who swims in the, in the, in the water and doesn't know there's water. So... <laughs> How do we get it across? I think maybe analogy is like pointing out that an economy is like a language, as, Adam, as the blessed Adam Smith did. He, he knew that analogy right at the beginning of economics. The best economists, at least in my mind, are always storytellers. They're always, but, but I don't want you to overuse the word story because it has a, 
it has a specific technical definition in the English Department of French. And it's not only stories. It's not that the word story covers everything. Yeah. It's there. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that the brain works with stories on the one end and metaphors on the other. There's a scale. There's actual brain science evidence for this. And uh, so it's it. You have to keep it. They're, they're poets and they're novelists, both. And we all are. Yeah. It, it strikes me that, um, you know, when we when we fall into arguments about, you know, what the data shows. Yeah, yeah. Um, even very compelling data sure. showing about how, how it is and when people are free, um, enrichment happens. I got and, tons of it. And, but my, my bias, and I think this is right up your alley, is to focus on sort of common sense values that, that resonate with people. Yeah. Um, which are kind of the rules for sure. liberty that yeah. allow for people to be prosperous and free and, and to find fulfillment. And, and you've, you've written many books on this subject as well. Well, there, there's a, a John Hughes, a great economic historian at Northwestern, wrote on the tension in American culture between that liberal vision, oh, go do what you want, that's okay, you, you can do what you want. And the other impulse that we seem to have deep inside us of, of the busybody. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you can do what you want except don't be gay. Yeah. Or do what you want or don't be transgender. Or do what you want or don't be Catholic. Or do what you want, but, you know, but, all the buts. But, I, I, honestly, I think the core American value is the first thing, this mm-hmm. leave people alone. There's a, there's a story from the 1880s about a tourist from Europe, France, who came, to, he must have gone fast by railroad because he just came to the United States and went straight to Montana. Now, surprising, but there he was in Montana. And in the European way, he came up to the first cowboy he saw and said, who's your master? And the man replied, he ain't been born yet. <laughs> and that's very American. So I think we've got to try to get rid of American number two yeah. and stick with American number one. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't care about each other. That's the charge you hear all the time. Oh, you, you don't, you don't, you, you're not in favor of community. But a community of equal adults is, is a wonderful thing. And it's, it's, it's a conversation in business. It's a conversation just like we're having. It's, it's equal. Yeah. I thought you were going to suggest that there was at least a perceived conversation between individuals and their autonomy versus how we do things together, community. Well, that's what people claim. Yeah. But I think that I th- when, you, when, you, when you get beyond, you know, just superficial thinking about it, as a lot of people don't, <laughs> come on, how do you make a community, uh, a early Christian community? You talk to each other. You, you cooperate. You, you, you know, as, 
St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, we have a variety of gifts. Some have the gift of prophecy. I suppose those are the economists. Some have the, the gift of tongues, linguistic ability. Some have this, some of that. And he implies, although alas, he doesn't say it explicitly, they can trade with each other and make everyone better off. And that's the spontaneous order that develops in a market. But when you think about it, it's true of, um, uh, of, uh, uh, of say, art. You, some artist takes a, you know, goes and uh, uses chrome yellow number one like Van Gogh did, and then another artist says, yeah, I can do that, and I'll do, boom. and they, they're conversing with each other. You could say they're, they're trading ideas. Yeah. And that's what makes a community better than Crusoe, right, on, right. Uh, by himself on an island and more productive and more creative in the way that conversation is. Conversation I always think of as having something in the middle that you and I are both working on. And you know, I've come to the belief that it's the only source of human, cre or the, yeah, the only source of creativity is this thing in the middle among people. So, so, so community is essential, but the community doesn't have to be bossed. Yeah. It doesn't have to have a master. He ain't been born yet. It's, um, I'm thinking about the, the end state, which is a division of labor and mutual benefits from exchange. I'm using yeah. my economist hat right now. Yeah. Um, but I think Adam Smith would argue that that stuff doesn't get to happen until we, we learn to sort of put up with each other. That, That's right. That there's a certain empathy that's Absolutely. required. In his first book, a book actually I prefer, I mean, I know it's heresy to say so, I prefer it to The Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, great though that book is, The Theory of Morals, Morals Sentiments. He starts, is the first sentence, I, I won't get it exactly right, is, however selfish people may be, there is something in us that cares about other people. And then he goes on in the rest of the book to elaborate on this, how we form love. Love conquers all, sorry. Love conquers all. And indeed, that's the theme of the book. And, and it's not as if the first book, and so he wrote only two books, he wouldn't have gotten tenure at a major university. Yeah, slacker. Slacker. He didn't read, he didn't produce any articles in the American Economic Review? I mean, it's shocking. He didn't even have a Twitter account. No, nothing like it, uh, <laughs> except actually he talked a lot with his friends. But the, it's, it's not as if those two books are contradictory, as was often thought. No, no. In order for a commercial society to work, there has to be this egalitarianism of permission mm -hmm. that allows you to speak literally to your merchant colleagues and to speak metaphorically to them with trades. That process is, of course, the, the, the market process. It is. And, but, it, but even, I even hesitate to use the word market. I would very much avoid using the word capitalism to describe this process. Of I people, hate the word. You know, because what we're really talking about is folks uh, first putting up with each other 
Yep. And then tolerating each other and then cooperating to mutual benefits yep. and, and getting to the point where there's mutual respect. Yeah. Um, in, in something, some, some sort of profound sense of belonging. Very deep, very deep. Um, and that, that is the market process, but it's, it's, I don't think when we talk about markets, people think that at all. Think, look, think how you actually, your, one's actual life in markets. You buy a paper every morning from the same guy. He has a stall on the end of the street. You eventually come to know him and eventually to love him. You go to the same cafe and you get to know the customers and the staff there. You go to your office. If your office is gonna function well, there's got to be an element of love in your relationship with your colleagues. If there's not, if you're the Max U selfish jerk that is posited in a lot of economics, it's not going to work. It's going to work poorly, as we, as we can see in, in places where that's the case. Um, and in fact, in fact the, <laughs> the worst aspect of thoroughgoing socialism is precisely that people don't make friends with each other because they're not exchanging with each other. They're, they're either stealing from each other or th there's, there's a wonderful book by a, a Soviet writer named um, Grossman, his last book, who he started as a communist and then became a liberal, and of course the, the Soviets didn't like that, so his his um, his books were banned. But he he talks about a case in which a little community in the same building started trading with each other, and a guy who knew how to fix shoes fixed the shoes, and a guy who knew how to write interesting letters, was hired to write interesting letters. And then the Communist Party boss found out they were doing that cooperative activity and crushed it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, 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 can't ha you can't have that. No, no, we can't have this mutual benefit. I mean, what a terrible thing. That's capitalist. And, and the word is so misleading scientifically and, and politically. So what, what's wrong with the word capitalism? Well. For one thing, it turns people sharply to thinking that the accumulation of capital is what makes people rich. Mm -hmm. Makes not people rich, makes the world rich. And yeah, capital is necessary. We're in a room here and made of bricks and we got to have microphones and you know, I, I get it. You, but you also need people to do it and you need sunlight and, and it's got to rain occasionally. And, those are all necessary. There's got to be a street outside your house uh, and a surrounding society. So all those things are necessary. Capital is not special in that respect. And so people then think that K, that's what we call it in economics, K, sort of in honor of German. And, and K causes enrichment, and that's just baloney. What causes enrichment is innovation the amazing small cameras we have here, the amazing microphones, the amazing this and the amazing that, that have, have proliferated enormously since liberalism came into the world in the 18th century. And that's the secret sauce. And so I prefer to call it innovism. And I'm gonna, I don't care, people can go on not knowing what I mean and I'll tell them, well I mean what usually, people usually call capitalism 
but it's scientifically misleading to call it capitalism. It's much better to call it innovism, which gets closer to what actually happened in the last two centuries. So we, we've come up with this half-baked rhetorical device where um, I refer to all the isms as the deadly isms. <laughs> and of course, I'm talking about Maoism and communism and yeah. fascism and Nazism, and there's far, yeah. too, far too many of those. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to figure out a way, and, and instead of a left-to-right spectrum, yeah, yeah. I have a circle. And at the bottom of the circle is the most anti-human, yeah. uh, devastating forms of authoritarianism. And as you work your way up the top, and you could get there from the left or the right, Very uh, good. if you want to use those things, um, like I'm that. trying to come up with words above the line well, that, that don't have an ism on it. Well, I, I recommend liberty. Liberty. Uh, and, and I have had the same idea in the last three weeks, which is the uh, Putin's war. And I think what's, what the, the effect this has on people who don't, you know, not, don't watch programs like this much and don't think about politics or economics a lot, they think in terms of left and right. And, and the journalists enforce this rigorously. They put you and me in the right side of the thing that's crazy we're not on the right side we're not on the le- i was i was a socialist once but now i'm not i'm not on the right or left but anyway the war has made it clear that the choice is between orwell's terrifying image from o'brien the party man in 1984 if you want a vision of the future imagine a human face with a boot stamping on it forever yeah that's your bottom mm-hmm. And the top is a free society of adults. Another word for liberalism, of course, they have to use the ism, ismus in German, but okay, let's go with it for a while. Maybe I can think of something better, is adultism. Mm -hmm. Because the other things, both left and right and middle, make people into children. And it's a not unattractive metaphor that the society is a family. Yeah. We all grew up in families. I, most of us, I hope, were in loving families. And so we think, oh, yeah, let's just stay with that. That's great. We'll have a mama and a papa. Uh, mama um, Ava and Papa, G- papa G- Gunnar, and they'll run our lives, and won't that be sweet? But what I think will appeal to teenagers is we want to be adults. Yeah. So we, adult. You, you know, the, the kids, like the first time they get an apartment or the oh, first yeah. time they have a car payment, they call it adulting. I know. Uh, yeah, that, um, that's a good way to say it. The first time, yeah. you, you must have had the same experience. First time I got a paycheck, I was just thrilled. I felt, now I'm a grown-up. Wow. Yeah. And that's appropriate because... It's not just the servicemen fighting in Ukraine, or not fighting in Ukraine, actually, who are, we should thank for their service. It's you and me, mm-hmm. and uh, the grocery store clerk, and the entrepreneur. We're all doing service for each other. In fact, I often claim, and this is not, this is c- conventional, that Innovism is the most altruistic of economic arrangements because everyone's looking. You say, oh, we're looking for profit. Oh, that's terrible. 
oh, prophet, that's awful. No, it's not, because it's the reward for finding a trade that someone's willing to make so they're better off than you are. You're both doing service to each other. Why not use the word innovation? I, I think I probably should instead of innovism because I think you're right. This, this ism stuff puts people into camps. Yes. I am a proud fascist or I'm a proud communist or proud this or proud that, social democratist. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe you're right. Maybe I should just say innovation. Even as like, and it, it gets to sort of finding words that that convey core values where yeah. people are like, yes, yeah. I believe in that. I agree with you. And innovation is one of those things, particularly in America, but I, I mean, I'm kind of a humanist. I think there's a human sense that being free to solve problems and create something better. Although, is, in English, and I think in French too, until the 19th century, innovation was a bad word because it meant innovation in religion. Huh. And no one thought that was good, Yeah, except the people innovating. They thought it was great, but not the others. So what's the, I mean, the, 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 it's kind of a chicken and an egg thing. You've, you've written about this extensively, um, the, the democratization of creation and production. Yeah, absolutely. And doing stuff. Because it's not just the Thomas Edison or the, you know, that uh, Steve Jobs. It's not just that stuff. It's the little things. You open a hairdressing salon in the neighborhood that that turns out to be quite a good idea. People like me who really need a hairdresser get to have one, and you're better off, and everyone's better off. Or you, you or you move to North Dakota to work on the oil fields. Even those little innovations where you get out of your routine and take a chance, that's entrepreneurship too. Entrepreneurship is not just for the hi-hats, it's for all of us. Yeah. And if you have a society in which that's honored, people say, gee, gosh, Janice, that was a, you did a really good job in opening that hairdressing salon. I'm so glad you did. Come on, that, that's what people... That's the kind of that's the kind of dignity that people want, even if it's a very modest income. This is my enterprise, and it's so rewarding. So even the word innovation evolved to capture that new thing. Yeah, and it, well, it got too much used, I think. Although I'd have to really do a close study to be sure of this, but it got too much high innovations, the steam engine or yeah. electricity. And no, those are all great, I'm all for them. But, but if you don't have a society in which little innovation is honored, you're not gonna get the big ones. Look, um, Whole Foods started as a single grocery store called Whole Foods in Austin, Austin, Texas. Now it has almost 300 stores all over the United States. And of course, Walmart started as one store <laughs> in, our, in Arkansas yeah. and now has over 1,300, 13,000 stores worldwide. 
So, so the little innovations, you, we, 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 we can't be snobbish about them. We've got to be democratic because the key thing about, b about the liberal idea is an equality of permission. Not an equality of opportunity, that's unattainable. And certainly not equality of, out, equality of outcome because that's the end of, um, uh, of trade and civilization. But, in, but permitting people, permitting women to fly airplanes. Shamefully, I'm still a little startled when I'm on an airplane and the captain comes on in a woman's voice. I actually saw a captain, she and I were having coffee in, uh, in O'Hare a couple of months ago and, and I, I started a conversation with her. I said, uh, I'm captain, I'm delighted to see you and, and I admitted this fact and she said, yeah, I understand. But letting people have a go, as the British say, in art, in science, in language for that matter, in, in, uh, in friendship, try to make friends with a voter who voted for someone else. You'll find it at least bracing. <laughs> And maybe today, it, today bracing. Br yeah. It'd be bracing now, but yeah. but if you do it in a sincere way, I hesitate to say a Christian way because it's true of Hindus and animists and everyone else. Well, let's go down that path a minute because this this is sort of why we're struggling to explain um, cooperation. And I'll, I'll go back to my 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 structure where um, there's certain words that have real heft. Yeah. Innovation is one of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, somewhat oddly, entrepreneurship is one of them. Yeah, because people speak of, so people on the left speak of social entrepreneurship, yeah. and they're really proud of that. Yeah, cooperation seems to be one Cooperation, of them. people love that. I, it's funny because uh, I'm, I'm going to redo my, my structure because I, I always thought that the penultimate value was cooperation, but, but you might put the L word above there, love. Yeah. Because, oh, absolutely. Because cooperation leads to that sort of look rehumanizing look, of other people. Five stranger women get together in a kitchen to make dinner, and they instantly fall into cooperation. They don't start grabbing pots from each other. <laughs> they make accommodations. Five men get together. They assign a quarterback, and they at least if they're Americans, and they carry on. Mm -hmm. They cooperate. We're a very cooperative species, we humans. In fact, there have been books and books and research done about this on a great scale. Compared with, say, chimps, which are the closest to us biologically, chimps sometimes cooperate, but very little. Whereas, um, uh, I'm going to make a joke here, but it's also true. Humans and crows cooperate. Crows will cooperate in solving a problem. There have been experiments that show that, but, but people do it all the time. One of our problems is getting something to eat tonight. And the economy is a massive cooperative enterprise for us to do it. And yet the, the problem is, of course, that like the fish in the water who doesn't know she's in the water, we don't know that we're cooperating. 
You go down and you get a loaf of bread. <laughs> Come on. Someone out in the fields of Kansas harvested the wheat to make the bread six months ago. He didn't know that you were going to buy the bread. But, you know, we're always saying this to our students. Miraculously, it appears just when you want it. <laughs> Miraculously? Um, the, is it, this reminds me of Bastiat's story that I tell all the time about wondering why Paris is fed. Yeah, yeah. I've used this a lot when now that we're discussing supply chains again. Yeah, um, yeah, oh boy, we're all about supply chains. God, God help us. Yeah. But you have this, so you, this, you, you have this, in, what feels like an increasingly polarized society. Yes. And we're told that we have to choose this team or that team. Yeah, yeah. And it's the, it's, it's a conversation stopper at best. I mean, it, it actually can, can lead to violence. Uh, violence. As a few blocks from your house, it did. Yeah. And I keep thinking to myself, we can solve this problem. Mm-hmm. We libertarians, we, we know what the solution here is. And it's not, it's not, um, it's not a right-wing flavor of authoritarianism. Nope. It's not a left-wing f- flavor of authoritarianism. They're kind of the same thing. But we, it's non-authoritarian. Yeah. That's the key. <laughs> and, that's the, and the challenge is um, we have this, this, this way of sa- telling people, that, you know, there's a way we could all get along if we would um, move from these centralized structures mm-hmm. and these economists want to, that want to lift the hood and, and fine tune the engine right. and just let people figure stuff out. Yeah. And that, that's what we're struggling with. Like this is a beautiful solution and it almost feels in the middle if you're accepting the left right thing, but it's not, it's, it's, it's up. It's the up and down thing. Yeah. That's why I'm so hopeful that the Ukrainian war will lead to a reorientation of the politics. It, 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 it expresses vividly what the big difference is between an authoritarian boot on the face of a human on the one hand, which is Putin, and I hope, although it could go, could go south to express it in your terms uh, fairly easily, I hope the Ukrainian government turns out to be a functioning free, society, a free government. Yeah. It's, or a free, not, not a free government, a free society. It's kind of um, fascinating, and, and Putin is clearly a, a keen student of, of, I'll call it our culture war. And yeah, yeah. This, this tribalism that we're going through because one of his attacks on, and Zelensky, and I, I, I don't, I'm not convinced that Zelensky is some sort of Saint. angel. No. Not at all, but it is um, devastatingly ironic that Putin calls Ukraine, the fascists. Yeah, I know. <laughs> since, since Zelensky's Jewish and had three uncles who died in the Holocaust and so but, on. But, and it, so but isn't, isn't uh, I mean, um, Putin's not, he's not an old school communist. He's, he is no. a fascist. He's an authoritarian That's right. that has very much tapped into um, controlling the means of well, production. Well, you know, and, and it shows stuff. what you said, that from, from, from the left to the right, you can either go down to hell or up to heaven. And um, on the way, on the say, on the so-called the left, right, the the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, they use the KGB in a fascist way, identical to the way um, Hitler yeah. used such organizations. And out of them came, out of that came the new Russian leader, uh, t- twenty-two years ago. 
So it, to be taught these techniques of coercion and fear, and as you said, making distinctions, getting people to hate each other. Yeah. Tom Palmer pointed out, who's a great uh, student of these matters and activist, um, Tom said, look, all the other political philosophies depend on hating someone. The communists hate the bourgeoisie, the social democrats hate the rich, the, uh, the, the Catholic conservatives hate the Protestants, the <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the liberals who say, well, no, wait a second, dears. Let's stop all this hating and just work as equally loving. You know, again, I'm a, I'm, I call myself a Christian liberal, and I, that's not to say that the other faiths don't, don't advocate this too, they do. But let's, let's allow me to be an Anglican as I am. And, uh, you know, the, I, <laughs> can't we all just get along as yeah. the cliche goes? Well, that's the message of our Lord and Savior, dears. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty simple. <laughs> So, it's not simple to implement, it's, but it's very simple it's, in its, it's message. Proving, it's proving quite difficult Rather, to, to implement. And it's not that the Christians have been, t- been particularly good at it either. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the two sides of, of human nature that, that you laid out yeah. earlier, um, I, I, I'm an optimist. I'm always an optimist. Um, Terry will argue with me because I haven't been terribly optimistic the last couple of years, but I'm, <laughs> I'm also a long-run thinker. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think that the instinct to be free and the instinct to cooperate and the, the, the real sense of community that comes from free people, these, yeah, are, yeah. these, are, these are strong moral, um, not just aspirations, I think they're... Well, I, I they're think innocent. they're inherited. I, I think they're genetic because we spent most of our time as humanoids or as uh, um, uh, homo sapiens even, as hunter-gatherers. The time we spent in agriculture, which for all its great achievements like writing and you know, so on, that's great. But it, it, it's, it's hierarchical. It's intrinsically so. The farmer is stuck where he is and some guy on a horse with a, with a sword says, well, so sorry, this is this, this my <laughs> land now. You gotta pay me rent. Um, that's deep in us because the hunter-gatherer, I I don't want to idealize it. There's a lot of evidence that that hunter-gathering life was quite violent. Um, But what was clear is that you could walk away, that that you could go go somewhere else, or or if you didn't like the, the local boss who was trying to be bossy and you didn't like it, you could get together and kill him very easily. Whereas not in a hierarchical society where the aristocrats who own the land are all in, a, in cahoots to keep you all, your ancestors and mine, down. So, but on the other hand, I think we also have, and I, I don't know what the evolutionary psychology of this is, we also have hero worship. We all do it. You and I think Hayek is just the cat's meow. We just love Friedrich Hayek. He was perfect. He was perfect. A little problem on the marital front, but he was perfect. 
Um, and, you know, that's people aren't perfect, and we should stop doing that. Right. But we do. Yeah. They, uh, I, I love, um, and this, this will probably deeply offend you, but I describe, <laughs> I describe myself as the intellectual bastard child of Ayn Rand and Jerry Garcia. <laughs> and sort of what I mean by that is I love, I love to pick and choose. I, th- I think yeah, yeah. I have a lot of intellectual influences. And, well, I do too. And I think there's a lot of profound stuff in there. But if you, if you sort of translate um, Hayek into a religion that cannot be right. questioned. And lots of people do. You get into trouble. You get into trouble. There's this uh, one Johnny, Johnny, Johnny one note thinking doesn't work. And our colleagues, the other economists, yeah, they do tend to get into Max U and it's always about self-interest. There's an old joke, a beautiful woman offers herself for sexual intercourse to a lawyer. And he says, well, all right, but what's in it for me? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's kind of max you gone nuts, and, and that's what our, we tend to do. Yeah, and that, you know, one of the, one of the challenges sort of um, in economists, like by reducing people to equations, um, um, our side falls into this sort of trap that we're just encouraging maximizing utility against constraints. Yeah. And I don't even buy that whole paradigm. Well, I'm, I, I'm probably less of a neoclassical economist well, I, than you are. I buy it when it's useful. <laughs> if you're dealing in trying to explain covered interest arbitrage in the foreign exchange market, I really don't think your first stop should be love. It's not well, going to work so well. I've, I've avoided that conversation my entire life, and but, I continue but on, to. But on the other hand, it turns out, and this is an interesting fact about the foreign exchange market, jokes in the world are, to a surprising degree, transmitted by traders in foreign exchange markets worldwide. Because every time the market opens in Hong Kong, and the guy in London is just going off the air, he tells a joke to his people in Hong Kong or his friends in Hong Kong, and that jokes keep circulating, and that is the little love potion that indeed helps the foreign exchange market work. Yeah. Some of their, they're all a bunch of guys usually, so they're not such nice jokes, but still, they're, they're there. So um, I I was unaware that you've written on the rhetoric of liberty. I have indeed. Give me the elevator pitch. Well, very simply, uh, a free conversation, free persuasion is is liberty. End of elevator pitch. We haven't even got to the second floor. Yeah. (laughs) It's real simple that uh, Plato was an authoritarian squared, and he hated the rhetoricians. He hated the sophists. And so we kind of, with, if we don't know much about it, we think, oh, those sophists, they're terrible. They try to persuade each other. I'm always trying to convince my colleagues in marketing that they're doing a very dignified and important thing. They're talking about commercial free persuasion. Not commercial free, but commercial free persuasion yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and that's 
that that's a good thing. Um, and Plato hated it. He didn't want he wanted the poets to be suppressed, and he wanted there to be guardians and philosopher kings, and they would all tell us what to do. So, whereas the sophists were, uh, the, at least the professional ones, were essentially law professors, teaching people how to defend themselves in court. So you have to learn how to argue. And that's the, the what's the word, that, that, that's what holds a free society together. As Adam Smith said, as the blessed, and I always cross myself, mention Adam Smith. <laughs> Well, Adam Smith was perfect, despite his, he was, he was his lackluster publishing. That's at, right, exactly. It's, he, he, I'm not going to accord him tenure, but, but <laughs> he's a <laughs> nice fellow. Yeah, he's my hero, among my heroes. I have, uh, I have a good friend who, who describes the entire liberty philosophy as persuasion. Yeah, it is. And the, 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 that's what I'm arguing in this paper. Yeah. And it's, it's against... <laughs> It, the the paper is aimed at my friends in communication studies and English and so forth, who are all to to a man or a woman are socialist. Yeah. Anywhere they're left wing and trying to say, now wait, dears, what you're talking about is a free society of the sort that we liberals want. Indeed, it's true of poetry. I mean, the the poetic tradition is an ongoing conversation in which people uh, trade with each other, so to speak. They compete, but they compete for our customs, so to speak. We, as the poetry readers, get to read the idea of order at Key West because it's the greatest poem written by an American since Walt Whitman. uh, or maybe uh, Eliot, but um, be, because they compete with each other. Yeah. It's not competition like war. There, that's a common error, that competition is the war of all against all. No, no, no. It's the absence of a liberal society, an absence of equality of permission that makes for a war against war of all against all. It's funny you use the word war because I was going back to our emerging um, diagram and one way to think about it is is the the middle line above that middle line is anything that uses persuasion that's a good way to put it that's a very good way to put it because anything below the line uses what violence violence yes this so it's that's the line that's very good i like that Violence versus persuasion. Yeah. And the further up you get, the more and you think, oh, well, that's unrealistic. Well, you need some violence. You need some violence against, I don't know, some bad person who wants to steal from everybody. But you, you don't need to be coercing people all the time. I think we've solved the problem. We've solved the problem. Solved we have the, the perfect diagram. Yes. Perfect. No one's ever going to improve on this diagram. It's untouchable. <laughs> It's a dogma. Yes. Everyone must repeat it. You, you notice this about, um, so I, uh, Terry always picks on me. I love to quote dead economists. And, yeah, yeah, me too. And, and libertarians I, are. I actually, I quote a lot of dead people. I'm, I'm a necrophiliac. I love dead people. The more dead, the better. Mesopotamians 
I practically have an orgasm about Mesopotamians. I just love Be, it. Because dead people can no longer disappoint you. And, yeah, and, and yeah. you can sort of erase the parts that, yeah, that's that true. maybe were disappointing and, and really true. focus on the things that yeah. matter. Yeah. So um, so what what's going on with you? I, I see you talking all over the world right now. You're doing a lot of traveling. What's yeah. what's the latest intellectual project? Well, my my current intellectual project is the free society, the 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 society of liberty, um, and I'm more and more. I'm going to be um, I'm going to be coming back to the Cato Institute a couple of months every year, once in the fall and once in the spring, um, for a month each, and uh, it's. It's a delight to be around people like you and Terry who are committed to a free society. Instead of what we all do, as it were, speaking out is trying to get people to first base. Mm -hmm. Whereas at Cato and in this studio, you're on second or third base and the only question is how to get home. With our perfect diagram, that's how we get home. (laughs) This is it, we've got it. <laughs> I, I think it's it's more of a metaphor than a diagram, maybe. Um, but I don't know. Well, we can do econometrics on it. This is great stuff. So if, <laughs> if if people want to check out your latest musings, I know you have a website. Where would you like people to go? Well, I, my w- website is deardomcluskey.org. It's not it's why is it not dot com? Because my deans at the University of Illinois who pay for it although I've been retired now for seven years, they pay for it and they couldn't stand the thought of it being calm, commercial. <laughs> yes. They yes. wanted it to be org and nonprofit and beautiful. So anyway, it's Deirdre, you have to spell Deirdre. Think of the word weird, spelled the same way. E-I-R-D-R-E, Deirdre. Okay. Two R's. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed that show, make sure that you like and subscribe. Click the little bell so that you get notifications. And if you consume this via podcast, go wherever you want to go. We're everywhere. Kibbe on Liberty. The revolution starts now.